First Corinthians thirteen is where we'll start. Um, before we, while you're maybe flipping there, getting situated, I just want to say that I'm glad that all of you are here. Um, this is probably the thinnest we've been in a while, just as far as people being sick and traveling out of town. Chuck texted me, I think yesterday, I think it was yesterday, um, and told me that he found out he had the flu. Um, I don't know if he reached out to anyone else, but um, apparently he had been dealing with that for a few days and finally decided to go to the doctor, and the doctor was like, yeah, you're three days into having the flu, so that's why he's not here this morning, and thankfully so because I don't want to get the flu. Um, But also Stephen um, is in North Georgia and and, uh, spending a weekend in a cabin, so that's why he's not here this morning. Um, Obviously, Pat, I'm sure, if if she's feeling up and about, which I think is doubtful, she'll be taking care of Chuck. So, you know, that's kind of where they're at right now. Um, I tried to reach out to Leona this week. I haven't heard from her. And so I don't know where she is this morning. Um, same with uh, Robert. I haven't heard from Robert. So if you guys have contact with them, feel free to reach out to them and just check on them, make sure they're doing all right. Um, so anyway, I wanted to, to say that and also to say 1030 is our Bible class. So um, just remember if you can, that's when we're studying. And so try to, if you at all possible, be here for that part because it's a good time to have conversation like we had this morning about some difficult parts of scripture and helps us understand one another so if you can make it for 10 30 that's useful um we've been going through first corinthians 13 for a while now i when i speak about twice a month every other week or so um like once one of those is going to be on first corinthians 13 well double dose this time, because I spoke last time on 1 Corinthians 13, I'm speaking again on 1 Corinthians 13, and where we actually end up in our sequence of going through the characteristics of 1 Corinthians 13 uh, is found in verse 6 this morning, or this afternoon, make, make Richard's mistake there. Um, but in 1 Corinthians 13, let's actually begin in verse 4, just like James read. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Verse 6 is what we're talking about this morning. I decided to just kind of two sides of the same coin, so we're going to talk about kind of that whole verse there. In verse 6, and that is, love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Um, Some translations, like what James was reading from this morning, use love as charity, right? That's that word there. Some translations um, don't say wrongdoing, they say iniquity. Um, Some translations... Uh, might vary in those ways, but the idea is love is not rejoicing uh, in wrongdoing or iniquity, but rather conversely rejoices in the truth. Um, and when I was looking at these words here to see if, you know, sometimes when you look at the root words and things, you maybe you get an insight that you didn't get just from the word in the English, right? And when I was looking at this, it seems like from what I understand these words to mean from looking at that, 
it could fairly be translated this way. Love does not celebrate wrongdoing, right? But takes part in truth. That seems like that could be a fair translation of how this is phrased because the rejoicing, though kind of the same root idea, is actually two different words um, in this verse. And so they kind of give the nuance of like celebrating one and taking part in another, right? And so if we think about it maybe kind of in practical terms that way, it helps us to kind of figure out what the applications are going to be, kind of moving from this idea. Um, But what I want to say about it this morning um, is a couple basic things that probably a lot of us have thought about. When you think about wrongdoing, when you think about iniquity, probably the first thing that's going to come to your mind, especially in a spiritual context, a Christian context, is going to be the concept of sin, right? And as it relates to to love, as Paul is describing the best he can with the Spirit helping him what love is in practical terms, what love is in philosophical terms, right? We have 1 Corinthians 13. When you get to verse 6, it almost seems like a no-brainer that love is not going to have a part in sin because the way he's describing it in 1 Corinthians 13 is this is really a description of God's love. And if we understand God at all, we know he can't have any kind of association with wrongdoing or with iniquity, sin, right? So it almost seems like a no-brainer if you've had that progression of logic in your head, but it is not such a no-brainer when we start thinking about ourselves because we start asking practical questions, right? If love can't have participation or cannot celebrate in things that are wrong, right? And I'm supposed to be loving, what does that mean for me? Right? That's kind of where we start to kind of say, ooh, this might not work out perfectly, or maybe I don't understand this. Because I ask, and I don't want to put this in your mouth, but I ask questions like this. Well, who does this mean I can associate with? Right? Like if I know someone does something wrong, does that mean like this affects my relationship with them? Or maybe does this mean I have to be perfect? Right? Like I can't ever make a mistake, and if I do, I'm not a loving person. Right? Like I ask these kinds of questions in my brain when I come across verse 6, so maybe you do too. And I think maybe some of what we're going to talk about this morning is kind of my reasoning through this and trying to sort out what God is trying to say to me in this. And so hopefully maybe it meets you in some places that you find helpful. Um, because the types of things that I want to talk about this morning are these. Uh, what does it look like to not celebrate wrongdoing? Like what does that practically look like? What does it look like to take part in truth um, on a practical level? And then ultimately, um, why does it matter that love is this way in our lives? Like, why does it have to be that way? Um, Those are kind of the three big things that I want us to look at this morning. I also want to say this, that when I think about truth, a lot of times I think about it as like fact versus fiction. Right? I think about like evidence versus not. Right? Um, and I think that is right. I think that is true. But also maybe uh, I need to think of it more of as reality versus not. Maybe that kind of spin can be helpful on thinking about truth. It's not just a statement. It's not just information. It's about what's real versus what is imaginary. 
Um, and maybe that aspect of truth can be helpful in this discussion as we think about why would I not celebrate what is unreal but take part in what is real? Maybe that's how we need to kind of view this. And I think that's where God is really going in 1 Corinthians 13 when he's talking about love and all these weeks that we've been talking about love. The idea is really real love, true love, is this stuff or is not this stuff. And so when you get to verse 6, love does not celebrate uh, fantasy, right? It, wrongdoing. That's not real. That's, there's a substance to that, but it takes part in what's real, what's true, right? Maybe you can think about it that way. So let's uh, move into kind of the first part of uh, what I want to talk about from this lesson. And it's going to be based in Luke 19. So if you want to turn there to Luke chapter 19, uh, I want us to look at how Jesus uh, kind of is viewed as he sees wrongdoing or as he sees problems, iniquities, however you want to phrase it. As Christians, we, we, we want to model ourselves after God, right? If you're not a Christian, um, that's something that I encourage you to investigate strongly, like learning to model your life after God. And Jesus was kind of our picture of that, our portrait of that. Like God became a man and he lived a life. And so in pretty much any way we can think of, let's find a response of Jesus in his life and model ourselves after that. And that's what Luke 19 is. So if I'm going to live out love and how love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, I thought of Luke 19. If you'll read with me from verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, this is Jesus, and he's looking at Jerusalem, he weeps over it. And he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. When you look at this just quick section, these just three verses, four verses here, would you say that Jesus loves Jerusalem? Like the practical kind of side of that is like, then why else would he be crying about it, right? We see some real emotion from Jesus. And so we infer, we imply, like, Jesus must love Jerusalem on some level to be upset when he looks at it. But what's interesting about it is Jesus' love doesn't move him to celebrate Jerusalem, right? Like, his love doesn't move him to make excuses for Jerusalem. You know, that's kind of where my love wants to move me sometimes. Like, I, I love something or I care about something, and so I ignore maybe, like, some problems with it, or I tolerate those things, or I make excuses for those things. I don't accept the truth or the reality of, that, of whatever it is because I love it, right? And I think what Jesus is demonstrating for us is 1 Corinthians 13. He really does, in a sense, want the best for Jerusalem. And that's what the love is in 1 Corinthians 13, is a decision to want the best of someone else, to love them. And I think when I look at this, it tells me a lot of things about love. Jerusalem, and I think, 
I've said this before, and I'm sure you've heard this before and studied this for yourself, but Jerusalem really literally means the name is like city of peace. Right? And so look at verse 42. Jesus says, if you had only known, you would even know on this day the things that actually make for peace. Right? You're named the city of peace. You've hardly ever known, like in your history, what like peace looks like. You've had some years with David, right? You had some years with Solomon. But if you really knew what brought peace, that's kind of his big comment here. If you had only known what brought peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, or they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground. Jesus' big complaint here, his weeping here is based on they didn't really see the peace that was coming. They thought they knew the kind of peace they needed, right? Political peace is what they want. And Jesus is saying, if you only knew the peace here that I could have offered, I would have brought you in, right? Jesus loves this city. He loves these people. I want you to to listen to this quotation that I ran across when I was like studying up for this lesson. It says, a man named David Gusick, I don't know how to say his last name, uh, says this, Jesus shows us the heart of God, how even when judgment uh, must be pronounced, it is never done with glee. There is weeping in the heart of God, even when his judgment is perfectly just and righteous. I thought that was a powerful quotation, and I think it shows me Paired with this example, that quotation brings to light how love can be love and yet not celebrate wrongdoing. Do you see that kind of like the tension there? Like Jesus really loved Jerusalem and he really wanted them to be his and to know true peace, but he couldn't celebrate what was going on there. He couldn't tolerate it. And justice had to be given, right? And I think Jesus shows us in one application of like how that tension is held. Um, If we want to move on to chapter 3 of Philippians, I think Paul also shows us something similar. Um, Chapter 3 of Philippians. In this chapter, we're going to just read a couple verses here. Uh, that illustrate the point that I I want to make. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3 of Philippians. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. I don't know everything that's kind of going on here, just like I don't know every detail of every problem in Jerusalem when Jesus was weeping over it. But a couple things are obvious here. Paul is teaching truth, the reality of spiritual things, right? And some have rejected that. Maybe we get insight into like what facets of truth they're rejecting by verse 19. Um, but whatever it is, Paul is saying that they're walking contrary to the truth, to the reality of the cross, right? 
And with that, we see Paul's love. On one hand, you see Paul's love in that he presented the truth to them, right? Like, that's loving. But they end up choosing the wrong thing, some of them. And Paul has to write these verses. Now, again, I, I kind of illustrate the same points here. Like, Paul is a, is a man in the sense of how we experience humanity. Jesus kind of was his own special case, right? He was a man, but he wasn't a man. So sometimes in our brains, we have a hard time relating to that. But Paul was completely a person. And we see Paul kind of experiencing the exact same thing Jesus experienced in Luke 19, because in this, he says, for many of whom I have often told you, he's talked about these people before, like even these people he's writing to know about these people because Paul talked about them. And I tell you now, even with tears, that they're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul didn't celebrate the fact that these people were contrary to the cross, to the truth. But it didn't stop him from loving them, right? And so when we think about 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, and it says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, do we see Paul fulfilling that? He has real love, but he's not rejoicing in them walking contrary to the cross. And he's making that plain, isn't he? Like when you go down to verse 19, sometimes my love would tempt me to not write anything like verse 19, right? I love someone so much, so I'm not going to be willing to say their end is destruction. Then I have to ask the question, do I really love the way God's telling me to love? Or am I in some passive way celebrating their wrongdoing, right? Am I some, me being timid or me trying to be humble in some way, have I moved into God being able to say, you're rejoicing in wrongdoing, you're not rejoicing in truth. I don't think I see Paul illustrating that for me, but I don't think anyone would question whether he cared about those people, whether he loved them because he writes with tears. And so I think because we see Jesus illustrate this for us, I think the way we see Paul illustrate this for us, we start to kind of get a practical picture of what it looks like to love someone and not celebrate wrongdoing, right? Not celebrate the imaginary reality that they've created for themselves like jerusalem thought they were getting peace right by killing jesus these people thought that they had truth by walking as enemies of the cross of christ we don't celebrate those kinds of things um i want to read this to you you guys have probably heard of this guy charles spurgeon um famous christian thinker and philosopher and writer He had this quotation. I liked it a lot. Uh, I never read that the apostle wept when he was persecuted, though they plowed his back with furrows. I do believe that never a tear was seen to gush from his eye while the soldiers scourged him. Though he was cast into prison, we read of his singing, never of his groaning. I do not believe he ever wept on account of any of the sufferings or dangers to which he himself was exposed for Christ's sake. I call this an extraordinary sorrow because the man who wept was no soft piece of sentiment and seldom shed a tear even under grievous trials. 
So to say, I assume, we're making an assumption that that's true, but if that is, what's it say about Paul's love for these people that he went through some hard stuff and Scripture never says he, like, weeped about it. But then when he's writing about people that he loves being an error, he says he's doing it with tears. I think that is loving people, loving souls, and not celebrating wrongdoing. So our attitude to wrongdoing uh, needs to to be consistent with Jesus' example, and Paul shows us how he lived consistently with that example how we love people, but we don't celebrate wrong, wrongdoing. Psalm 97.10 says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 97 says we're to hate evil. First right? Corinthians uh, 10 verse 12 says, Therefore let one who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And the reason I want to bring that up is because you know, we struggle with verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 13 sometimes. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing because maybe like Psalm 97, we don't hate sin really, right? We just kind of tolerate it. And so to rejoice in wrongdoing is easy. Even though we wouldn't say we're doing that, we kind of end up doing that sometimes. So we need to live out Psalm 97 more. We need to really hate wrongdoing not celebrate it. But then sometimes, like 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is telling us, sometimes uh, we can feel superior to the one doing the wrong, right? Like if we decide we're going to hate wrong, what that can move into is that, right? Like kind of builds in me to become a, a pride thing. Like I know that I need to hate wrong. And so now like all of a sudden I start feeling superior to someone. Well, we have to remember passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 12, right? That plainly say, uh, pride uh, is the cause of this, right? Take heed lest you fall, those who think you stand, right? So there's a tension there even that we have to hate sin, but we can't use it to motivate us towards pride or arrogance, right? But then also, we also, if we're not, if we're not uh, rejoicing in wrongdoing, I'm going to offer this as kind of a test as well. Maybe you have a secret craving for sin yourself. Maybe you're not willing to denounce or to stand against wrongdoing, even though you love someone because secretly you wish you were kind of in their place. Um, I know people that are not willing to stand up for true things because ultimately they wish they didn't have to stand up for them as well, right? They kind of wish that they could have the courage to live that life or to think that thing or to be that way, right? They, they want that. And so they're not willing to say it's wrong, even though God might have. Uh, Mark chapter 7, I'll just read this to you. In verse 20, And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the mouth of man, or out of man, that, uh, is, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. I think what Jesus is saying, along many other things, is that kind of craving within, right, is a problem. 
Like when we crave, when we want things that maybe we don't even manifest all the time, that's what's going to mess us up. That's what defiles us, right? And so for us to not rejoice with wrongdoing, we have to make sure we hate sin, but make sure it doesn't lead us into pride or arrogance. But then also make sure um, we don't have a secret craving for wrongdoing because ultimately that will defile us just as much. Um, so here's three questions that I'm going to offer because I think most Christians are going to say they don't rejoice in wrongdoing. Like if you're a believer in God, you're going to probably claim that. And I think, I would like to think for most of us that's true. But here's three questions that maybe force an honest um, evaluation of ourselves. So number one, do you rejoice in couples marrying that have no right to marry? Like, do you celebrate that? Like, are you happy about that? This may be a practical question to see. Maybe you have some work to do in this area. Um, what about this one? Do you rejoice in friends seeking peace outside of God? Maybe their ultimate peace thing is that they exercise. That brings them peace and contentment. Maybe they party, they drink or whatever. Do you celebrate them? Are you okay with them finding peace, ultimate peace, so, this, so to speak, outside of God? Do you rejoice when rivals yield to temptation? Um, and what I was specifically thinking with this is sometimes people in church don't get along with other people in church, and are you glad to see them fail? Right? Are you happy when people that challenge you end up looking like hypocrites or they end up sinning themselves? Does that make you glad? Just three basic questions. I'm sure you could think of a ton more to kind of honestly think in your head in practical terms, like am I celebrating wrongdoing regardless of the context, regardless of my reasoning? Are these things that I find joy or happiness in? Okay, so let's move on to love rejoices in the truth. This is the shorter part of the lesson because I think fleshing out what it means to not celebrate wrongdoing kind of moves you necessarily to what it means to celebrate truth, right? Um, and so what I wanted to say just kind of quickly is mostly rooted in John chapter 4. Um, so if you want to turn there, you can. Otherwise, you can just listen to me as I read um, some of these verses in John chapter 4. Uh, and I'm going to read kind of a big section here. I don't have a ton I want to say about it, so I just want to read it mostly. Uh, verse 7, and then we're going to go down to verse 26. John 4, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him, he'll never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a, uh, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the wood woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. 
And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. And what you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship in fa uh, the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus rejoices in the truth. And I, I love this story for a lot of different reasons. And this week, studying up for this lesson gave me one more. I feel like this is a great example of how Jesus rejoices in the truth. Um, and we don't see like Jesus in this story. There's no commentary that says like Jesus like shouted and yelled and celebrated and like danced around when he told her hard things, right? But I think this is a really real example of what it is to celebrate in the truth because I don't think a lot of times that's going to be the, re the response that we're going to have to truth. I don't think we're going to contextually, like in scenarios, that be the appropriate thing most of the time. I think the appropriate thing for most of us in our day in, day out, when we're going to either choose to celebrate wrongdoing or truth, is going to look a lot like this. Um, Jesus had a lot of opportunities, if he was inclined to do so, to celebrate wrongdoing. He could have avoided some of these conversations. He could have avoided telling her what was hard to hear. Um, for instance, Jesus shows us that rejoicing in truth does not mean bigotry toward those in the wrong. Like, look at verse 9 again. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman in Samaria? Right? Jesus had a lot of opportunities to kind of show bigotry in this moment. Nationally, ethnically, uh, gender bigotry, whatever you want to kind of throw out there. And even in the sense of like spiritual bigotry. He could have been like, I know a lot more than you. And... I'm a Jew, and I know the way, and I worship correctly, and you're in sin. But when you look at verse uh, 22 here, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's truth. It's reality. Um, but the conversation doesn't stop there, does it? And so I think this is interesting that Jesus rejoices in the truth, but it was not an excuse for him to show bigotry. Um, in fact, he rejoiced in the, his rejoicing in the truth pushed him to reach out to her, right? Like because he loved her and he loved the truth, it actually moved him to not be a bigot, not to be prejudiced, and actually share that with her. I think that's a portrait of true love. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 23 I'll read this quickly. Um, you can turn there if you want to. This is kind of an aside here. I'll just add it in quickly. I think it just flushes out this point some more. 
beginning in verse 20 of 1 Peter 1, he was foreknown, speaking of Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable uh, through the living and abiding word of God. Did you notice in that text that your souls are purified by your obedience to the truth? The truth is what purifies there, but did you see what it's purifying toward? It says you're purified by the obedience of the truth for a sincere brotherly love, so love one another. Jesus illustrates that here. Like his love is godly love. His love is perfect love. And so he lets, being the word, he is purified, right? But because of that, he shows this woman love, right? And so another point that I want to make uh, from this is the first one was Jesus doesn't... uh, Sorry, Jesus shows us rejoicing in truth does not mean bigotry towards those in the wrong. Jesus shows us that rejoicing in truth should not make one arrogant. Remember we talked about that kind of being a danger? Well, Jesus shows us that really that's not the case. Look at verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. A lot of opportunity for Jesus to kind of boast here. A lot of opportunity for Jesus to kind of twist this into a really arrogant and proud moment, right? Where do you get it? Oh, I bet you wish you knew where I got it. I am way greater than Jacob, and you'll never, ever be this great, right? Maybe something like that he he could have been tempted to say. Um, But we know that's not how it unfolds. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Rejoicing in the truth doesn't make us arrogant, but rather it's offering, it, offers, it forces us to offer help to those who need it. This could have been a moment where Jesus like just kind of sat on how great he was, but he moved it from that to like, yes, I can and do will do this for anyone who asks. He really offers to help others live by the truth, and he offers to help them get there, right? Like he could have just sat on that pedestal, but he says, anyone who wants can have this water. And really through this dialogue, he's helping her understand how to get the water, right? Sometimes for me, I choose to rejoice in truth, and that makes me unapproachable and unhelpful. That's my version of rejoicing in the truth. And what I mean by that is I'm going to be kind of what Richard was describing earlier in Bible class. It kind of makes me callous. And so I'm not a really helpful person to go to, right? Because I know what's right and I know what's wrong. And let me tell you, I could tell you all the things you're doing wrong, but I'm not going to tell you how to fix it. I'm not going to offer to help you fix it, right? I'm just going to tell you you're wrong. Jesus doesn't do that here. And the last thing that I want us to see in this is Jesus shows us that rejoicing in the truth does not mean tolerating wrongdoing. We talked about that a moment ago, but this is kind of the positive example of that. 
when he talks to her in verse 16 about her husband, right? Jesus had a real opportunity to not, I mean, to not even bring this up. Go get your husband. That's him opening the discussion, right? This is a positive example uh, of how to not pretend like something is right when it's wrong, but also not to be arrogant, not to be unhelpful, not to fail in loving somebody, right? Jesus doesn't tolerate wrongdoing, but rather he confronts the wrongdoing with truth and gives understanding with that truth. Um, I thought that was helpful for me when I was studying through this, is to see that Jesus didn't shy away from celebrating truth, even when someone else obviously was living wrongly. But when you look at this, like look in verse uh, 17 there, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. My impression, one uh, takeaway I get from this uh, dialogue here is that Jesus is exposing wrong, iniquity, problems, however you want to phrase that, but he's bringing truth with understanding. Like, he's not just saying, like, yeah, you don't have a husband. He's saying, and this is... This is what I know about your situation, and this is on some level like how I'm reasoning through this. Um, and so ultimately, just these quick three things that I'm seeing in this, love rejoices in the truth. This last one here is, uh, it does not mean tolerate wrongdoing, but sharing with others who need truth and who need understanding. So this is the test. Just like I gave you kind of test questions to think about like practical ways, like am I celebrating wrongdoing? I'm going to ask you kind of three questions to help you think about am I really rejoicing in the truth or celebrating reality? Do you rejoice in God's teaching when you disagree with it? That might be an indicator that you don't really celebrate or rejoice in the truth unconditionally, right? Do you rejoice in God's teaching when others make it uncomfortable or it's unpopular? Do you rejoice when you share God's truth with someone regardless of their response? Sometimes that's not super easy, but do you like rejoice in that? All right, there's a difference. Hopefully... Uh, this lesson, in a lot of ways, remains true to what you know the Bible says. Like, it probably wasn't revelatory in a lot of aspects. But hopefully in practical ones, it connects the dots between love and what it means to kind of toe that line or operate in the tension of, like, not loving wrongdoing, but rejoicing in the truth, but still dealing with people and still, like, living a life, Right? It's hard sometimes to take, at least for me, biblical principles and walk away, or biblical teaching, and walk away feeling like I don't have to be in like a convent in the countryside to like live them out, like perfectly, you know? So I think for
for me, these lessons are helpful because I can look at things Jesus did and say, hey, that looks a lot like verse 6 in 1 Corinthians 13. So what does that tell me about that thing? And it gives me tools to when I approach someone that has been married a lot of times to talk like Jesus talked. Or when I see a situation where people are having to suffer the consequences of sin like Jerusalem, I can still love them but say like, hey, that's the reality of sin, you know? And so it gives me a lot of places to kind of use to put this into action. So hopefully this lesson's done that for you, kind of opened up some of that. Hopefully you've been able to answer the three test questions on both sides, like, well, that you didn't feel condemned in your own conscience and by God by having different answers to what than what you should to those. I'd encourage people today, um, I know, I think most of us in this room are Christians, if not all of us, but think about these things. Challenge yourself to really push through um, and learn to not celebrate in any facet wrongdoing, but really find the joy that Paul and Jesus had in truth, regardless of how that makes you feel emotionally, regardless of what that means for you personally. Um, find ways to celebrate that. If there's anyone here this morning that's been challenged by this lesson in some way or challenged just this week in different things that you want prayers from the group, let somebody know so we can pray for you. Um, That's what this group's here for. I think sometimes it's scary to say that I need prayers, but we're all lying if we don't need those. Uh, And also, if you're not in a good relationship with God, what better time to fix that than when you're around a bunch of people that are interested in fixing that? So this is your time while Richard leads us in this song to think about some of that stuff and to reach out to somebody if you need help.